Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Hi everyone, welcome to this latest episode of EDGE. It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, in this episode uh, a great friend uh, and a great person in terms of Ian Box. Ian, I would describe as a very successful businessman, adventurer, both uh, on water and land, and we'll get to know more about that and we'll we'll chart some of those critical pieces of Ian's journey to today, overcoming tragedy in different forms and emerging uh, in a sense of triumph. Ian, welcome to Edge. Thank you, Stephen. Ian, tell us a little bit about the young Ian Box and growing up in uh, country uh, South Australia and uh, that journey to finding his calling in terms of business. Sure. I was born in a little town a couple of hours north of Adelaide called Jamestown. My father was the second son in the farming family, so he didn't get the farm. He was a hard-working bloke who was a, a shearer and a wheat carter and a share farmer, and he saved enough money to move away from the country because there wasn't going to be a big enough or good enough future for him. And uh, I'd been born, and I was four years old, where they, they had and my brother and sister twins two years later. He saved up enough money to buy a small business and I'm not sure why, but he decided to buy a delicatessen in the newly developing northern suburb of Elizabeth called Elizabeth Downs. We moved there and he, he, they bought a house, um, one of the better houses. They were, there weren't that many nice houses in Elizabeth because it was a developing city, all very new, not too many trees, a lot of uh, public housing, housing trust houses, a lot of Ten-pound palms had settled there. The Holden's factory was in Elizabeth and there was quite a bit of manufacturing and um, this was a, the, the new satellite Sydney of Adelaide. So uh, they saw a future and, and bought a delicatessen in one of the little regional shopping centres. We moved in and, and they started working seven days a week, you know, long hours, and build a business. But... Um, when I started primary school, I, I soon realised that, if you like, compared to uh, the locals, we were the bourgeois. You know, we had a, a successful family-owned <laughs> business, but mm-hmm. most others you know, didn't have those fortunate um, circumstances and, uh, you know, we were seen to be too successful and I was harassed as a kid at school and, and Victimised. I guess most kids feel that they've been bullied at some point in time in their schooling career, but it certainly happened to me. It was a rough, tough area. I made reference to the Jimmy Barnes in his book writes about growing up in Elizabeth West. Well, Elizabeth Downs was tougher than Elizabeth West, I'd have to say. I actually had the fortune of meeting Jimmy Barnes on a flight. He'd written that book and he had been over to interview some people. He was writing it, I think, at the time. And as luck would have it, we sat next to each other on a plane back to Sydney and struck up a conversation. And I didn't know until then, in fact, that he'd grown up in Elizabeth. We were 
talking about those days and the sort of people that we had to deal with and you know, he was part of that, I was part of that. My parents ran that business successfully for, for 10 years and then built a new house in a better suburb of Adelaide, at Urbray, and we moved into a new home and a new suburb and um, I went to Unley High School as a kid. I think I moved when we were 14. And it was interesting, the, the neighbourhood kids had got wind of the fact that this new tough kid from Elizabeth had arrived. <laughs> and I made some good friends over the summer holidays and um, went to Unley High School on my first day of school and I decided, I'm not sure why, but I thought I'd play on this, this new perspective that people had of me and, and I didn't want to be victimised anymore, I didn't want to be bullied and I wanted to change the narrative, so... I, I asked my new uh, mate, who is still my best friend in life today, he lives in Sydney now too, who the toughest kid in our year was. And uh, this was before the first bell of the first assembly of the start of the year. He pointed out, uh, with a lot of Greek and Italian kids at, at only high school, pointed out Big George, and Big George was standing there with his mates. And as bullies are, they tend to run in packs, they don't tend to run on their own. And um, I thought, I don't know why, but I just had the thought that I would try and make a different change to things. So I went over to Big George and gave him a shove in the chest and said, they tell me you're the toughest kid in school. I'm Boxy from Elizabeth and I've just moved. <laughs> and uh, he was distracted. So I, I took the chance. I thought, what, what, what could go wrong? I took the chance and I whacked him as hard as I could in the solar plexus and thankfully winded him so badly he fell to his knees. Before he could get up, the bell went and we went off to the assembly. There was talk of, you know, we'll get you after school, but they never did. And I, I had a whole school career that no one ever picked on me ever again. Well, you went to school with uh, not only the bullies, but future Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. He was a year behind us. Yes, he did. I mean, only High was a very good school compared to the one I'd started out in Elizabeth. It was chalk and cheese. Strict regime of uniforms. Sir Mark Oliphant had gone to that school. It's a scientist who was credited with being very involved in the development of the nuclear bomb in World War II that was an alumni from that school. But it was a good school and I had a good education, but I was never a strong student. And I'm not sure that, that everyone needs to be a strong student. I'm a great believer that, that in my opinion, while you've got to have some technical skills in most things you do, success seems to come from my observation more from people skills than it does from technical skills. I'm a great believer that, you know, we need to probably develop our schooling program to have more focus on those sort of skills than we do, you know, the EQ issues and the, rather than IQ issues. I don't think it dealt with well enough. That's a great observation. The soft skills are the hard skills, the dispositions we need to, the, the building connections, relationships are critical. So from there, the young Ian Box... I was fascinated, given a background in the racing industry, you went into bloodstock insurance and then... Well, yeah, that was a bit before that. I was going to be a journalist. Whilst I wasn't a very good kid, I wasn't very good at school work generally, English was my strongest subject and I actually quite enjoyed writing and I, I had this ambition to be a journalist. Um, 60 Minutes had started and I... I saw myself as being George Negus, travelling the world and interviewing 
you know, that, that sort of television journalism just suddenly caught my attention. I, I could enjoy doing that. And I applied for a cadetship at News Corp in Adelaide, the advertiser, Rupert's flagship paper, and actually got down to the last four. And I also applied to the ABC. I was actually offered a job at the ABC, but I turned that down because I thought the newspaper would be better. And I got down to the last four. The more I looked at journalism, the less I liked it. You know, they worked horrendous hours. You know, they had to prepare their copy overnight and the floor that the journalists were operating on was smoke-filled and they'd go off to the pub in the morning when they'd knocked off work and working overnight and being a morning drinker didn't really appeal to me. So I can recall saying to the sub-editor that did a final interview that I'm actually backing out. He said, you've gone all this way, why? And I said, well, I don't think it's for me. Give, give it to someone who deserves it more than me. I, I'm not sure I want to be a journalist. And... Uh, my parents at the time were a bit horrified because they thought, what are we going to get him to do now? You know, where, where can we direct his attention? And being good country people, they, their view was that if you got a job working for an insurance company or a bank, it was a job for life and really you know, pretty stable. My mother saw an ad in the paper for a cadetship at an insurance company called Lumley's, which was a multifaceted insurance company and... Uh, Anyway, I applied and I got the job at 17 before my year 12 final exams and um, finished my exams. I didn't do all that well because I didn't need to. I was never going to be at university. I thought I had my career start. And uh, I really did start at ground level. They um, put me in the mail room for the first two weeks and then serving over the counter for motor vehicle insurance and householders and different things. And I finally found my way after a couple of years into the broking side of the company. And I I thought I'd found my place. I really enjoyed the concept of being an insurance broker. And I got noticed by someone in the industry who had his own little business specialising in bloodstock insurance. And I got headhunted and started with him. And he was only a a two, three-man business, but one of only two businesses in Australia that was at the time specialising in bloodstock insurance. And um, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of sires and dams and racehorses, and it was a fascinating learning curve. And we dealt with fascinating business people because the owners of racehorses tend to be fascinating people. They're pretty successful and they've got business interests outside of that which we would look after as well and I learned a lot you know Harry and and was exposed to the running of a small broking business which as my life then went forward uh, was an important learning curve. You and your colleague founded uh, which is you know highly successful national credit insurance brokers I mean you've always said to me and you've just said it again, looking for opportunity, finding uh, the niche market and being good at it and really sticking to it. And uh, obviously, uh, when it was taken over by QBE, a significant footprint in terms of the insurance industry in a particular area. I guess rather than go over the success, we're looking at why, if you were talking to future business people starting their own business, what do you think made that successful and what are the transferable lessons for the future business people or entrepreneurs like you? What would you mentor them about? What would you say, do this, do that, not that? It was 30 
you know, more than 35 years ago now that we started National Credit Insurance Brokers. I was only young. I was 27. And I think I was fearless at the time. And a lot of people have said, you know, would you do it? You know, it's much harder now. And I, I actually don't think it is any harder. I think the older you get, the more you become fearful of failure. And the younger you are, the less fear you have of failure because you've got plenty of time to do something else. So my advice would be if you think you've got an opportunity to do something, then don't be frightened of having a go. If you prepare to work hard enough at it and stay focused at what you do, then you'll turn almost anything into a success. But you've got to have a good premise for the business. It shouldn't be something that is, 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 let's say, a passion or a hobby or something. It needs to be a genuine business opportunity. And we started an insurance broking firm that specialised in trade credit insurance because it was an area of the market that very few people understood. And we decided to be, you know, using the experience of having um, worked in the bloodstock game where there was, it's a very specialist area, you can specialise in an area and be the best at it and then not get distracted by that success in going off into onto other tangents because I've seen so many businesses successful in one area and then diversify too much, they'll fail. But if you stay true to your core and you perhaps develop vertically and so you add further value and further services in the same core, then you've got the foundation for building a, a business. And, and National Credit Insurance Brokers owned it and built it privately for 20 years. And we had our ups and our downs over those times. You can grow too fast as well if you're not careful. You need to match growth with resourcing it. And it's still a business that has a legacy today and is growing that I'm very proud of. It's a business that has a culture of its own. Um, it has very strong family values within the staff. Uh, it focuses its services around adding value to customers and not adding value to the bottom line. I really think that you've got to focus on what customers want if you're going to build a business, not how much money you can make. And I do also believe that it's beneficial if the business you're in has a sort of greater causal sense of value to it. You know, insurance against bad debt, which is what credit insurance provides, is something that very few businesses know of or understand. But when you've had a customer that has suffered a failure and they happen, you know, a Virgin Airlines fell over recently. You know, we used to tell the story for many years when ANSET fell over that anyone can fail. And when, uh, when you hand a cheque over to somebody who would have otherwise seen their own business collapse, their you know, house being sold, their, their, their staff out of work, when you hand them a cheque, that saved their business and saved their life, it's a pretty empowering thing to do. And so if you're, if you're selling a product like that that's actually adding real value, it makes it a whole lot easier to build a business around those ethics. So um, apart from, you know, the things that are uncontrollable in terms of failure in that setting and businesses, what do you see things, you know, looking at those classic cases of why businesses don't flourish? Any thematics, any things you can draw about that saying, 
lack of leadership, poor culture, many of what you've just talked before, um, not focused? Yeah, I, I'd agree with those observations. I think the leadership for success is a very important thing to have. And my view is that you've got to lead by example. You, you can't ask people to follow you that in, to, to do something that you haven't already done yourself or shown you can do yourself. People that work in businesses like to feel like they're part of something that's successful. It's good to be part of a winning team. And when you create that winning team culture, it, it has its own momentum. And I think that if you're going to be the leader of a successful business, you have to have demonstrated that you, you know how to do the job. And I also think you've got to have a real sense of clarity around communication. It, it ought to be very simple communication, very honest communication. Uh, and I, I'm rather grateful that I've been able to build a business in the years when political correctness wasn't quite so difficult to navigate because I've always been brutally honest with people. Those that are doing well and those that aren't doing well need to be told how, how they're going. And uh, I'd probably struggle in today's environment to be quite as honest as I have been over the, over the years gone by. So I, I think absolute honesty um, a sense of loyalty to, to the business and to the people that are working for you is important because it, it breeds a culture of loyalty. And you know, I'd like to see businesses have a teaching culture to bring people within the business with you and give them more responsibility and let them, let them grow as individuals. And, and I think a culture within a business that, that is focused around teaching rather than telling gives a future for the people that are working together with you that they wouldn't otherwise get. So they stay and, they, you know, I think longevity of staff is a key feature as well. It's very hard when you've got a high turnover of staff to build a growth business. You need people that can stick around with you for a long time to really build on it. So working with people and, uh, Ian, you're a natural mentor and somebody that, you know, I've connected to and see as somebody who, you know, I see as uh, a very wise person and a lot of the things you just talked about and uh, I often refer to some of your comments uh, in our incidental conversation and reflect on those. Now, you made a statement to me which I'm just fascinated with. Uh, I guess it cuts to the heart of your authenticity. Something like success comes from what you do when things are not going right. I'm a a great believer that when you see a problem, run straight at it, shirt front it, rather than hope it goes away. Wow. We'll talk about you pushing the edge on a motorcycle and a boat soon, but uh, give me uh, more of the animation of that, Anne. Where does that come from? Well, I don't know. I had a, I had a pretty valuable lesson in, in my earlier life. I married young and uh, at 22 we had our daughter and... Um, and my wife was diagnosed with what became terminal cancer. And that was really the foundation for me also starting my own business was to have some control over my own destiny, my own time. And so you know, dealing with a life-threatening disease at such a young age with all the challenges that we had really, I think, um, pushed that fight or flight concept right to the top and you know we would meet other people dealing with the same problems and the, the number of men that had 
run away and left their wives or wives that had left their men uh, at a time of greatest need was astounding to me. There was, there was only one way to deal with the problems we were dealing with, and that's head on and to try and solve them. We, we unfortunately couldn't. My wife, Angela, passed away at you know, the age of 27, leaving me with a you know, young daughter and, and a business that I'd just started. But that was very influential, if you like, in the way that I would see the world and, and need to deal with issues. So if you've got a problem, if you even sense that there's a problem, I'd rather tease it out and bring it out into the open than pretend it's not there or try and hide from it. You know, if, if, if you sense there's something to deal with, then you're better off directly asking about it, get, get in front of it and deal with it hopefully successfully, if not, you at least know what your problem is. I don't like not knowing. So if it's a problem, I, I've always said find it and run, run straight at it. And generally things work out best when you know how to deal with them. You know, the successful people in life aren't those that don't have problems or issues or bad luck. Success comes from what you do next when you're in that situation. It's how you respond. Thank you, Ian. I think that's a great lesson in terms of life and its uh, formation of you, the person. And uh, when I work with leaders, that's probably the number one or second thing that people raise with me. How do I have that difficult conversation? And how do I actually engage in a situation that's less than pleasant? So your authenticity shines through. And I, I guess... The podcast is about edge, which is about people pushing at the edge. And if I'm fascinated, this uh, the thematic flows through for your formation in Adelaide, country, South Australia. You're always looking for that point of difference and pushing that boundary. So take me to the water and to Sydney Hobart's um, Commodore, the Middle Harbour Yacht Club, uh, Sydney Regatta. Uh, that's hopefully one day I'll get to sit on the edge of toy box. but And then we might just share that wonderful story about the biking exploits around the world and most particularly the latest one. So take me to the, to the water, Ian. Why are yacht racing? Yes, it's a good question. I came to it late. I had to move from Adelaide to Sydney in the late 90s when... You know, the business had grown rapidly and we needed to be present in the eastern seaboard. And I'd met my new wife then, Trudy, and now happily married 32 years later and good friends of, of both you and Helen. And we rented a house on the harbour that had a mooring out the front, so we thought we'd better put a boat on it, started to, do some, started to learn to do some sailing. And uh, the more I looked into sailing, the more fascinated I became because there's so many things to learn. And uh, it was a skill I'd always liked to have had. And I'd had this ambition once we started sailing to have a long-term cruise. And uh, we had a couple of children. I had a couple of children when we were in Sydney. And every time we'd have another child, we'd get a bigger boat because you need more room. And um, I started doing some racing on a, on a neighbour's boat out at Middle Harbour Yacht Club. And uh, we fortunately... We're able to have a, a long sabbatical from the business. When it was the business was 10 years old, it was going quite well. I was getting a bit tired. Our son was um, 
not yet born and I said to Trudy, you know, one night, I guess our idea of a long-term cruise in the Whitsundays is unlikely to happen and to her credit she said, well, you can do this, we can do this provided we do it before this child walks. Raced around and got a, a bigger boat again, a 35-footer and I fitted it out and I sailed it with a mate from Adelaide to the Whitsundays and we, the, she flew up with the kids, uh, three kids. We were on board for four months doing nothing but just mooching around the Whitsundays, living by the, um, by the sun. We'd get up when the sun came up, we'd go to bed when the sun went down and we'd eat when we were hungry. It was the best four months I think we could have ever asked for. Some mates of mine from Sydney had pointed out that Hamilton Island Race Week was on when we were up there. So I thought that was a good idea. We, we got an apartment ashore and my mates flew up and we, we stripped the boat of some of the cruising gear and entered in the cruising division and, and um, we had a successful week. We won our division at Hamilton Island Race Week, uh, which was my first experience of proper racing in my own boat. And I had such a good time. When we, when we got back and the business had gone well in my absence, I started racing every Wednesday afternoon and then bought a bigger boat again, a, race, a more racing-orientated boat to do my first Hobart and we started to do some offshore racing. The attraction for racing is that it's, it's very multidimensional. You, you, when you're racing a boat, you can't be doing anything else but racing the boat. You can't think of anything else. And as a, an avenue for just keeping a sound body in mind, it's a very good thing to do. You've got 12 on my boat. You've got to make sure you've got equipment that works and doesn't break. You've got boat-on-boat tactics at the start line and through the course of a race. You've got race course um, strategy in terms of where the wind is coming from, where it's going to shift to and where the currents are and what the tide effect's going to be. And then you've got the man management issues of a crew of 12 who have to race together as a team. And a bit like a rugby team, you've got specialist positions on the boat. You know, a bowman can't do the same job as a marksman and they're different building. Mm-hmm. And to race the boat well, we, we have a two-hour race on the harbour. And the first three places are decided by, you know, the split between 10 and 20 seconds of adjusted time. That's a couple of bad tacks. That's one bad spinnaker drop. And so it's very compelling once you get involved in it. And the people that have been racing with me have been doing it for a long time. And we've got a a terrific team and um, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, But offshore racing is another challenge again. And uh, back in Adelaide, I'd sit on Boxing Day and watch, you know, the coverage of the Singer Hobart Yacht Race, never for a moment thinking that I would be competing in one. And never for one moment at the time think I'd compete in one and be a current Commodore of a yacht club in Sydney. I'd started racing out of the club and they tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're spending a lot of time down here and you've got quite a nice boat and we think you've got a reasonably good understanding of business. Would you like to be the Commodore? And uh, as a kid from, from Elizabeth, to think that I could one day be a Commodore of a Sydney yacht club was, um, was quite a privilege and we, we got a lot done. I was there for five years as Commodore and we built a new marina and brought back junior sailing to the club. It's now a centre of excellence for junior sailing and, in fact, the base for the Australian sailing team is now Middle Harbour Yacht Club. Introduced uh, sailability for sailors with disability to come out and sail, get on the water and and, uh, get out of their wheelchairs Uh, and 
in my last year as Commodore, I had a, an epiphany that we seem to go a long way to Hamilton Island to do a regatta. Why are there no regattas in Sydney? And it was because the yacht clubs were all doing their own thing. Mm. So we um, put a march on and invited all the other Commodores and said, we ought to have a Sydney Harbour regatta. And, and um, it needs your cooperation to help, help us run it. And they've agreed. And we've now in our 16th year, I still chair that, even though I'm no longer the Commodore. But it's one of the biggest regattas in Australia and something I'm very proud of. All the yacht clubs come together in, uh, in the first weekend of March. We run a two-day regatta on Sydney Harbour and uh, we've got boats competing against each other from, uh, from across Sydney rather than just within their own club. Just an outstanding um, innovation and uh, another example of a great uh, sense of achievement. Take me to the bikes. So when uh, we met you uh, with your beautiful wife, Trudy, in Palermo, you were about to set off. Uh, you are getting um, your boots or your motorcycle actually rebuckled or stitched and you are describing to me the, the ensuing journey, which I have to say internally I was... Uh, a little bit frightened personally, I wouldn't have just your descriptions, but you successfully navigated that and um, with your mates and it's been something that uh, you've shared with them. Last year um, we got a phone call, uh, a communication from Trudy to say that you had an accident off your bike and between Bathurst and Lithgow and one of those moments um, Tell me uh, once again, you're a person who overcomes tragedy and makes you a better person. You continue to triumph uh, with reference not to the motorcycle. Tell me about um, that particular incident and the story about the guardian angels rather than when I heard it the first time, the hell's angels had picked you up or, but I'm glad it was the uh, guardian angels. So <coughs> tell me about that accident. Yeah, look, not my proudest moment, but an interesting story. When I retired as full-time managing director of my business at 50, I always had this ambition of wanting to ride a Harley-Davidson. And I think you shouldn't start riding a motorbike until you're 50 or older, to be honest. You know, it's, a motorcycle's dangerous in the hands of a young person, but by the time you're 50, you should be sensible enough. So I bought a Harley and then I started to, I met a couple of, uh, three mates. We've got a, a bunch of people of uh, guys that ride together and we've had some fabulous weekends away, weeks away. We, we've ridden across the US a couple of times. We did Route 66 and we've, we've ridden nine national parks in 12 days throughout uh, the US. And we've ridden the length of Norway and just before, or just after I met you, we were we were doing a, a ride on either side of the, the Swiss, Italian, French Alps um, and back again, which was just fabulous. And then uh, then in January this year, I was just on a short weekend away riding on a back road uh, with three mates and came around a corner as a car came around the other corner and we met at the bottom of a culvert that would have seen us hit each other if I hadn't hit the brakes. So I'm on full lock on the brakes and on, we missed each other, but I was on the side of the road in gravel and um, big potholes and Harley-Davidson's don't like that very much. So I've got the wobbles ups and um, 
came off the bike, went down, and I kept going. And at about 50 or 60 k's an hour, I landed a, a perfect landing on my side. And I thought that I hadn't broken anything, but I know, knew I was pretty sore. And um, the guys came back and got me and got me off the road and into the shade and uh, got the bike off the road and was sitting there trying to work out what was sore and why, wondering what we were going to do next because the bike didn't look like it could probably be ridden and I probably shouldn't have ridden any further. And around the corner came a, an ambulance that no one had called and uh, it, it had taken a patient from Orange Hospital to... Uh, the Lithgow, and it was on its way back empty, taking a shortcut on this back road. And uh, it pulled over and said, can we give you a hand? And I thought, well, no, I'm probably going to be all right. I'll, you know, I'll see if I can get back on the bike. And and um, they said, no, you better come with us. So um, next thing I'm in the back of the ambulance on the way to hospital and eight broken ribs and a busted lung and four days in the hospital, I, I got home with a couple of titanium straps holding things together. I uh, decided that a Harley-Davidson's probably not built for the sort of riding I do these days, so I have, in fact, bought a Triumph and uh, with all the, modern, <laughs> all the modern technology on it, and the, uh, the Harley's been repaired and is, um, is thankfully up for sale. But um, I've got to tell you that motorcycle riding gives you that sense of freedom that sailing does. They're very similar. You know, when you get out and you're riding along through lovely country back roads and, you know, going through the, through the corners and you can sense the coolness of the bottom of the valley and the, and, and, and the, the heat of the plains and the, the smell of the trees and, you know, you go past a, a cow paddock and you can smell the cows, you know. It's, it's very different than being in a car with the windows up and the radio on. And sailing's a bit like that and racing in particular where you're in a, in a team and you've got an absolute mission to, to, to try and win and uh, you're using all of the elements and you're sensing the slight shifts in wind strength and wind direction and you're performing as a team focused on the job you're going to be doing and you're out in the elements, you know, you're out in the wind and the rain and the cold you're in life, as I would put it. You're not, uh, you're not observing, you're actually in it. And um, that's a pretty good place to be. I'm a great believer that um, life should be enjoyed, but, it, but not in a passenger seat. I think you need to be pretty out there and, and um, living in the moment. So finally, Ian, uh, living in the moment, not in the passenger seat. What's next for Ian Box? I can only imagine, but just indulge me. What What do you want to do next? What are you doing next that we can share with our uh, audience? Well, more of the same, to be honest, Stephen. I'm loving my life at the moment. I'm still uh, deputy chairman of, of the company I started that's got a, a legacy and, and a future and growth still. Steadfast bought that business from, um, from QBE six years ago at my suggestion, and I'm on a number of the boards associated with steadfast businesses. So I'm mentoring other businesses and helping them through growth and providing some value and feeling value, which I think is important. I'm loving my motorbike riding. I'm loving my sailing. I, I, I race every Wednesday when we can with guys that have been with me for about 20, 25 years. We catch up and that's very rewarding. Trudy and I were going to downsize and, um, 
have a house we could lock up for three or four months and then head buy a yacht in the Mediterranean. We were going to spend Australian winters over there and spend three or four months in either Italy or next to Spain and the season after that in Turkey or Greece. That would be a fabulous thing to do, but it's all on hold. We haven't ruled it out yet, but it's, um, it's something I think we should do before we get much older if we can and have the opportunity to invite family and friends and, and spend time together in that part of the world. Ian, um, there must be any more houses in your street to buy or purchase. Ian Box, a kid from Elizabeth in uh, Adelaide, South Australia, what a magnificent story. Resonates with me many of the things we try to endeavour to form leaders about. You know, somebody accepts a challenge and takes it head on. Uh, somebody who's got a clarity of communication and vision it's exceptional in terms of successful people see opportunity uh, where some other people can't see in their door. I love what you spoke about in terms of loyalty and building that loyalty. It is about teamwork and one success is success of many. This whole sense of freedom that you speak about and I was listening to you in the freedom of the water, the freedom of the bike, the freedom in business to push back and explore new ground and whether it's cyber security or whatever. But within that, build on a core value of um, what's important to you and resilience and be able to bounce back and bounce forward, uh, hopefully not off the road as well as you have recently. Um, some people see problems. What I hear from you, I see solutions. Let me have a look at it and we can make this uh, wire yacht people coming together and having a regatta in Sydney. So you're not a passenger. I think you're firmly steering the wheel of things at the moment and most importantly, you're pushing the boundaries at the edge. And on a personal level, it's uh, so good to have uh, a friend with you and Trudy and we greatly enjoy that. And uh, Look forward to hearing many more exploits and sharing part of those in the coming future. So, everybody, we need to acknowledge and celebrate the great journey that has been in Box and continues to be. So, thank you, Ian, for participating on the episode of Edge. Thank you, Stephen. That kind words. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown 1. Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.